RadioInfluence.com. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of Sitting Ringside. My name is David Penzer, and as always, we are so happy to have you here to listen to this thing we call a podcast. I want to apologize for not having a guest or an episode uh, this past this past week. Um, was in Nashville the entire week uh, and weekend, uh, taping many, 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 many hours of uh, impact programming and uh, got some great stuff coming up. Don't want to spill the beans, give away anything. By the way, we uh, will be joined uh, just a little bit by the one and only Chris Jericho, uh, the demo god, uh, to talk about the Undertaker who just recently retired to talk about AEW, Fozzie, uh, his dinner debonair scene with MJF, his feud with Orange Cassidy, and a lot of other great stuff. Great inside info from uh, one of the best in the game. So stand by for that. Also want to wish you guys a belated happy Thanksgiving. Crazy year. But uh, for those who stuck with me, I am grateful. And um, we're going to keep doing this for as long as you'll have us. So if you like what you hear, as always, spread the word, tell your friends, leave a review, subscribe, and you can follow me on Twitter at David Penz. We want to take a moment to talk about uh, something that went down this past week. We lost Bob Ryder. And it's funny because, you know, I knew Bob Ryder had cancer for many years and just always assumed that he would always be there. I mean, I haven't even gotten this far yet, but I don't think anybody has any idea of plan B for travel. Bob's been doing my travel for 15 years on and off, 20 years. Uh, you know, he's the go-to text or call and you know, boom, it's done. You tell him, you know, the flights you like. He tells you if it's possible, tells you where the hotel is. You know, and that's so trivial and dumb. I mean, who, I mean, that's just travel, but it's, it's just, it's just one of those guys you always thought would be there. And to wake up and to find out that he wasn't there was, uh, was a bit of a shocker. So, uh, if you don't know about Bob Ryder, just a little background. Um, he got into wrestling, uh, in the, prodigy time and i don't even really know what that is but the early days of the uh internet he had trademarked and ran the ecw website uh he also trademarked and ran the one wrestling.com website when that was the go-to absolute go-to website for inside info in the wrestling business uh broke a lot of huge stories WCW had brought him in towards the end to do WCW Live, which was a unique show, basically working off the internet. People could call in or write in and ask questions, and he had interviews, and him and Jeremy Borash did that, actually. And then he um, was a travel agent by trade, as you can imagine, with all the travel stuff. And um, he took Jerry and Jeff Jarrett after WCW closed out on his boat uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, and they came up with the idea of TNA Wrestling. And I begged Bob <laughs> so many times. I can't even tell you in the last uh, the last four or five years, three, three, four years, how many time, times I begged him to either do this podcast, do a podcast, write a book, 
write columns. You know, he had so much knowledge of the inside of ECW in the crazy times, the inside of WCW in the crazy times, the whole entire uh, history of TNA and Impact Wrestling. But, you know, God bless him. He was determined to um, to not tell anybody where the bodies were buried and uh, and take that to uh, take to, you know, take that till the end. And I, I respect that a lot. Would have been fascinating stuff, but I respect the fact that he was a enough of a company and a stand-up guy to not take that situation and that he had he could use to his advantage as far as writing a book, or having a podcast, and wanted to stay loyal to the business that he loved. So I want to thank Bob for his friendship, his help in travel and talent relations over the last. Jeez, it's been since 2004, so the last 16 years, and he is very missed. He will be very missed if you saw the outpouring of love and support from people in this business, especially people that work with him in Impact Wrestling, future and current. You could tell that the guy is just a one-of-a-kind person. You could call him anytime. You could text him anytime if you needed advice, if you needed travel help, if you were stranded somewhere. Literally, he would text back while he was having chemotherapy. I, I once was texting him when I first got back into Impact, and he said, as soon as I'm done with chemotherapy, I'll book it. And I said, I am so sorry. I texted back, I'm so sorry. I would never, never bothered you during chemotherapy. And he, he said, how did you know? He said, world goes on. I'm just sitting here. I got a phone, got a computer. I got to keep doing my job. So one of a kind guy. And we, you know, people pass and a lot. And we say that about everybody. And, 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 you know, Tracy Smothers was a one of a kind guy in a different way than Bob Ryder's was a one of a kind guy. But, uh, Bob, appreciate everything you did. And, um, uh, it's going to be tough to go on this impact journey without you. Knock on wood. But um, I'm sure you'll be there in spirit as you uh, have always been there to help. So just wanted to say that about Bob Ryder. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, let's bring in this week's guest. Longtime friend, one of the best of all times. He is La Champion. He is the Demo God. He is Chris Jericho. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are close to Thanksgiving, and I wanted to reach out to my old friend, Chris Jericho. As you know, The Undertaker retired in a rather elaborate ceremony about a week ago. Uh, you know, I never met The Undertaker. You know, I, I, I met him when he was uh, Mean Mark in WCW, but I really never got a chance to know him. And I know that nobody knows Undertaker like uh, you do. Um so I wanted to talk a little bit about The Undertaker's retirement. We could talk about Winter is Coming this Wednesday on TNT. You're going to wrestle Frankie Kazarian. Chris Jericho, welcome to City Ringside. I'm just going on and on. I know you don't even need a guest anymore. Just talk for like 45 minutes as the intro, and I say hi, and there's your show. Done. <laughs> there you go. We do that every week. So I'm assuming that you, because I saw that you never wrestled uh, Christopher Daniels, which I found fascinating. But I guess if you think about it, not surprising. I'm assuming that uh, this Wednesday at Winter is coming on TNT, 8 o'clock, uh, that you're going to wrestle Kazarian for the very first time as well? Well, not necessarily. I've wrestled Frankie twice in tag matches, but this will be the first one-on-one -on -one match we've ever had. Which, once again, I mean, same with Chris last week, that I'd never touched Chris ever. I think we had one tag team match with me and Frankie last year, and then this one that we just had last week. So both those guys I haven't had a lot of uh, a lot of ring time with. Zero 
when it came to Chris up until last week, which is so funny when you think about the fact that, I mean, he's been in the business for 27 years and I've been in the business for 30 years. And Frankie's not too far behind that. Um, but like you said, we were never in the same company. Um, Frankie was in WWE briefly, and then he got fired because he wouldn't cut his hair. Which I remember is, that. I now his hair is short. Now his, yeah, yeah. And um, Chris and I were just always in different companies, never crossed paths in Japan or, or anywhere. So, And it's one of those things in, in AEW that because I'm so much uh, in charge of my own booking – that when I watch the show and I mean, Chris as well, but, but there's, there's not a more underrated guy in AEW and maybe even in the wrestling business than Frankie Kazarian. I and mean, that guy has a great match every week. doesn't matter if he's on dynamite, if he's on dark, if he's in a, a single match or a multi-team match, whatever it may be, he brings it every night. So when I saw that, I'm like, man, I'd really like to, to have a match with him. So that's kind of how this whole storyline was started and then kind of tie in Chris Daniels as well. So it's always cool when you find guys that have been around for such a long time that you've never even touched. It's like finding um, this rare piece of, 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 of gold. If you're, if you're coal mining or something where you just say, I can't believe this has been here all this time and I've never, uh, I've never you know, come into contact before. So it's going to be a fun couple of weeks for sure. Yeah, it's amazing that uh, that two great talents like uh, you and Christopher Daniels, and I agree with you on Frankie's, uh, was one of my favorite wrestlers, and um, him and Chris both in Impact Wrestling, which was TNA at the time for sure. It's funny you mentioned booking your own angles because I want to get back to that a little bit later, if that's okay. But I, I wanted to talk, like I mentioned in the open, about The Undertaker. Uh, what an amazing career, man. You wrote, or I, you didn't write, you recorded a YouTube video, but I'm reading it. He was one of the most intimidating, most committed characters and performers of all time. You also call him the Fonz, which I find hysterical. Talk to me a little bit about uh, The Undertaker as a character and then also as a locker room leader. Well, I mean, he's one of those guys. It's unbelievable to think that Undertaker and Jericho never had a single match on on pay-per-view. And I think we only had two single matches on TV ever. And the first one was after I'd been there maybe 10 years or so. We just never crossed paths. He was always like on SmackDown when I was on Raw and vice versa. You know, the matches, the one single match we had was, was great. We had, you know, a great Elimination Chamber match and a couple other great kind of multi-team matches. But we never had that great singles match, which is one of those things that it kind of it's kind of blows my mind that that was never booked. Because he's another one of those guys, like I just mentioned with Frankie that, and Chris, the first time I ever locked up with him was God already been in the business for 20 years and I couldn't believe how good he was. And obviously it's not a secret how good he is, but I'd never experienced that. I think he felt the same way. And, and just, I, I just can't believe that that never led to us doing something more involved, but definitely behind the scenes, one of the, like I call him the Fonz cause he's, he's the epitome of cool. And he's also the epitome of a guy who, you know, when, when time comes, he can, he can, you know, get the lay the hammer down and, and get the respect and, and get things in order. Kind of like the Fonz, cool it, you know, hit the damn jukebox and it stops making noise sort of thing. And that's kind of the undertaker. Everybody respects the undertaker. The guys like to consider themselves locker room leaders. A lot of guys even claim to be locker room leaders. No real locker room leader says that they're the locker room leader. They just are, and everybody knows it. And I don't care if you're, you know, JBL in the height of being a bully or, you know, Brock Lesnar or, or Triple H or, or whoever it is, the buck kind of always stops with The Undertaker. And um, 
just a pleasure to be around, but also in the ring, one of the greatest characters of all time. I put Kane in that category as well because they completely know what their characters are and what their gimmick is. It's one of those things like when you're standing in the ring and you hear that, I, I call it the Taco Bell gong, gong. When you hear that and the lights are out, you really do get goosebumps because he comes to the ring very stoically, very seriously. This is no joke. There's no fucking around. And even to the point where if you watch him walk, he never turns his head. He only turns his whole body. Uh, that's how he turns everything. He walks up the step, stops and turns, and then he stops and turns. Like, it's really committed to, to everything that he does. And for a guy that big to work like he like he did, does, whatever you want to say, and incorporate that character, which on paper, okay, you're a dead man. It's like, what? Is this in lesser hands it could have been a one and done gimmick you know a mentor or something like that instead he uh, ends up being one of the greatest characters if not the greatest character in WWE history so all those things are kind of incorporated into what The Undertaker is and it definitely is the end of an era when he when he's done and retired because you won't see another guy like that you can't see another guy like that because times have changed so much did you ever uh, lobby to wrestle him at uh, WrestleMania? I was, you know, off the top of my head, I was like, sure, they wrestled at WrestleMania. And then I got to thinking about it, and I'm like, I don't think they ever did. And then I researched it, and you didn't. Did you ever try to make that happen, or just no, it's, it never it's, happened? It just, just never happened. And like I said, it wasn't one of those things where they were keeping us apart or, or where it didn't fit. It's just that we always had other stories going on. I, you know, probably my greatest storyline in WWE was against Shawn Michaels, and the only other thing at the time that was just as good on the other show was Edge versus Undertaker. So that was a good, you know, just for example, eight month angle where he's on SmackDown and we're on Raw or whatever it was, and you're not ever interacting. And so if you look through my WrestleManias, if, if I was doing something important, usually he was too. It's not like there's any shortage for The Undertaker, and it just never crossed paths to where it was Jericho and Undertaker. I always said, like, it was Kevin Owens one year because we had a story, or CM Punk because we had a big story, or, you know, the year it was Fandango, maybe that could have been the year we did it. But, you know, we were kind of always in, in the Chris Jericho that you're talking to now was very rare the Chris Jericho in WWE. I mean, there was times when I was the top of the top, but that's when I was working with Sean and I was working, you know, along that line. But other than that, Undertaker was always kind of the top of the top, and I was kind of wavering up and down, never in between. You know, if, if Undertaker was still there and I went back today and challenged him to WrestleMania next year, that would be bit, one of the biggest matches you could have. But that's because of the work that I've done over the last four years. So it was never really seen as, as, as you know, the main event. Uh, even when I was in the main events of WrestleMania against Sean and against Hunter, Taker was doing other stuff as well. So we just never were peaking storyline-wise at the same time to be worthy of that WrestleMania spot. Because once once again, that was always about the streak, you know, uh, until Brock beat him and whatever year that was. And I think I was gone at that point or close to it. So to go up with The Undertaker, you knew you were one of many that was going to fall. So you had to be the right guy because most people knew, oh, he's going to lose anyway. So it was hard to create a storyline with him. Uh, and we just never crossed paths at the right time to do that. You were there, although you never got the opportunity to do it. You were around the locker room a lot and, and, and right in the thick of things. Was it an honor to be chosen to wrestle The Undertaker at WrestleMania at some point when the streak became something that meant something? Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, I remember the one year, I think it was Punk versus Undertaker. I can't remember who I was up against. Maybe it was me and Edge or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it was. And Punk was angry. 
because all he wanted was to be in the main event of WrestleMania. And I was like, dude, you are in, in the main event of WrestleMania. Like, Undertaker's match is the main event. He goes, no, it's not last. Said, Listen, I was in the main event of WrestleMania 18 against, against Triple H. The main event, just because we went on last doesn't mean that we were the main event. The main event was Hogan versus Rock. I would have loved to have flip-flopped, you know, but, but just because you're on last doesn't mean you're the main event. He was very angry about that. Well, you've, you've been on last, so you don't know how it feels. I was like, okay. So, um, you know, I'll tell you what, it was an honor to, to the last time I won the WWE world title was from The Undertaker uh, in the Elimination Chamber, and that was the night he got burned, which was crazy. He actually, uh, he talked about it on the Austin uh, Broken Skull Sessions they just did where uh, he was walking out to the ring and the pyro hit him right in his face and kind of shriveled up his jacket and gave him third-degree burns all over his whole body. And then he had to go stand in the chamber for 20 minutes, walking back and forth, pouring water over his head. And then when the door opened, guess who he's in there with? That was with me and, and whoever else was left. But me and him were the last two. And I remember just seeing his, his chest was completely red unless you pulled this singlet away. And then it was like white where the singlet was and then completely as red as this side of my shirt uh, uh his skin and you know chopping him and put him in the walls of jericho which was the walls of jericho you're on your chest and i was like are you, are you cool man just keep going keep going i was like fuck this guy's tough as nails man and then uh sean came in front of the ring super kicked him and i covered uh, undertaker and won the world title so uh that was an honor because if, if taker didn't feel that i was worthy he would have done it you know that's excuse me you know that's the truth but also the fact that he was basically burned alive at the time that he did it got even more respect for me at that point. Absolutely. Hey, next time you talk to CM Punk, you can remind him that in the uh, heyday of the WWWF, that the main event in Madison Square Garden went on uh, before intermission. Yeah, so, I know. Yeah. So there's um, no, uh, there's no uh, talking sense with that sort of an attitude. So. I got gotcha. you. You've gotten more into creative eyes uh, in the last few years, as you mentioned, and you've talked about, would you have had Brock beat him? Um, I mean, it, it's hard to say, but once again, it's Vince's decision and Vince obviously had a plan in mind. I mean, in, in, in retrospect, it would have seemed that, that Roman might've been the better guy for it, but also through the time Roman was a baby face. So Roman now as a heel would be the perfect guy, but when they're kind of playing Roman as the baby face, it might have backfired on him too. So, you know, Brock was the guy that Vince put all his marbles into for many years. So did he need to beat Undertaker? Well, no, he didn't need it. But at the time, was there anybody else that made any sense as to where they were? And if Vince maybe thought this is his last one, I don't think he can come back. You never know. Whatever decision Vince made was the, was the one he thought was the right one at the time. And you can debate it until forever. But I don't think Roman as a babyface would have it would have really worked. Roman now would be the perfect guy uh, as the heel to beat the Undertaker for the streak. But that was, you know, five years too late sort of thing. Yeah, I don't know how long, why, why it took them so long to put him, Roman, in that position. But yeah, as a baby face going up against the Undertaker, WrestleMania, beating the streak, he'd have been booed out of the, the stadium for sure. That's point. If Vince wasn't ready to turn him heel at that point in time, yeah. then that's the reason why he didn't do it. You know, so it's, it's always easy to be armchair booker and to decide what's right and what's wrong. But you have to understand that Vince goes by what he feels and, and what's right and what's wrong for the company at that point in time. So what was right in 2015 or whatever that was might seem ridiculous in 2020. But during that week, during that day, maybe Vince thought this is, this is the only way to do it. This is the best way to do it. And this is the way we're going to do it. And that's what they did. Absolutely. Let's move to AEW because um, one of the things that uh, gave me goosebumps was um, 
when the you guys let the crowds back in now, albeit less than a thousand in an open air big building. But um, I, I remember seeing on I, I wasn't watching it live, but I remember seeing a, like a meme on I think you posted it on Twitter where you finally had the crowd singing your song. How did that feel? Because it gave me goosebumps and it's not my song. I just it, it sort of made me feel like at the time that there was going to be an end to this at some point. Well, that's the thing. I mean, here's the crazy thing is that we have been a company without fans longer than we were a company with fans, which is so crazy to think. And the first time people ever sang Judas was on the Jericho cruise, which was January 22nd around that time frame. So fast forward six weeks later, and, and now we have no fans in the crowd. So people just started singing Judas on their own. You know, this is one of those things in wrestling that, that it's such a rare thing. It's organic and it's real. There was no cues or setups or props or plants to do that. They just started doing it. And when that happened, I was like, holy shit, this is really cool, man. Like, this is something that doesn't happen every day. And it's something we should really capitalize on. And even a lot of people were like, oh, you're a heel. You know, you should cut them off. I'm like, no, that's not what wrestling is all about. Wrestling is about having the crowd involved and being into it. And, okay, so I'm a heel. They're singing the song. If I say don't sing it, then I'm stepping on my own foot. I'm cutting off my nose to spite my face because what the bottom line of wrestling is is to get a reaction. And that sort of reaction is one of those things where nobody planned for it to happen. Holy smokes, is it ever cool? Like you said, it's never been done before in the history of the business, as far as I can tell. So when the fans went away, it was such a drag because we lost that. And the first night they came back, which I believe was sometime in, in May or June, maybe whatever it was, or no, later than that. September, maybe, whatever it was. Um, I was like, are they still going to remember? Like, are they going to still do this? And lo and behold, they did, and they were into it. And that first night of having 500 people after not having anybody for six months felt like fucking Madison Square Garden sold out, you know? And so that's one of those things that whether there's 500 people or whether there's 50,000 people, I think we've cemented it now to where people will do it. And the only thing was they used to sing it the chorus twice, now they stop after one because there's not enough people to keep it going because they just all stop. So whenever we do a tape show, I always add another chorus to try and make people remember you're supposed to sing it twice. <laughs> you know, I don't know how often you listen to this podcast, if at all, but um, one of the things that I talk about on a regular basis is is how the organic things that happen in this business are, are the really the things you got that, that are special, which always, not to get back to Vince, but it always blew my mind how he, how he would run from those things. You know, Rusev Day was organic, you know, and he ran from it. I don't get that, but um, cool that they let you guys run with it. And it's funny, you know, as you know, because you got him tickets. Um, my youngest son went to the pay per view, and uh, we we texted a little bit and stuff. But yet uh, last night, as we taped this, oh, it was Thanksgiving, and he was here for the first time. I talked to him in person, so I asked, you know, I was asking about the show. He said it was great. He loved the great seats, and um, I said, "Did you sing along to Judas?" He goes. On the top of my fucking lungs, I did, and I enjoyed every minute of it. Yeah, like I said, it's, it's one of those things like you mentioned, the organic thing of Rusev Day or a yeah, a yes chance, the what chance. You know, all that stuff, when they happen, you just got to go with it. But this is the first time it's ever happened uh, with a song. So, um, you know, once again, I, I like to think of myself as a pretty smart guy, sometimes borderline marketing genius. You know, God. Demo God, but using Judas, the only the reason why I use Judas is because 
my first match away from WWE ever was at the Tokyo Dome. And we've been trying to get Fozzie to Japan for years and we just can't get over there for whatever reason. So I thought, well, if I use my song uh, for the ring entrance, well, at least 50,000 people will hear it. Someone sooner or later is going to have to fucking bring us over here. Well, they didn't yet. But here now we have this whole other thing uh, f- from New Japan that went to AEW. And the cool thing is, it's really continuing to, to spike the song streams and iTunes to the point where, and this is really cool, we're getting very close over the next probably six months to where Judas is going to go gold. Wow. As you know, Dave, a gold record wow. in this day and age, it's almost impossible. And it's not based on sales. A gold record before was 500,000 units. And this is just for the song, not for the album. But now it's based on 75 million streams. Oh, it so, is? I, thought, I assumed it was 500,000 streams. No, 75 million? 75. So, so it just goes to show a quick segue into the record business for anybody who's into music here. Uh, what used to get you a gold record was 500,000 sales. Now we get to the same amount of, of revenue, I would assume. The same, uh, the same uh, award of this gold album is 75 million. So that shows how the difference in the record business is nowadays. So I'm assuming platinum is 150 million downloads? I, I would guess. I would guess. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, maybe. You know, there are people that get that. But for us to be getting close to 75 million streams, a lot of that's, once again, that's on the back of, of using it in AW where it's on national TV every week. So, you know, I never thought I'd have a gold album and that would be the next step for us. We got to get it. Once you get that gold album hung up, we got to get a picture, me and you, behind that gold, in front of that gold album. That's super, super cool. I'm marking out for that, you know, as uh, as as we both are, both music uh, mark. So that that's super cool to have a gold album. Congratulations. I would assume, by the way, that once you could start touring again, that based on the popularity of the song and the, and the show, that you're going to probably be playing bigger venues, more fans. Well, I mean, once again, the popularity of Dynamite is different from the popularity of Fozzie. They're completely different things. That's always the way it is. But, I mean, we've had this tour booked. We were supposed to go out in April of May of, of this year. Like, I moved to July, August, got moved to October, November. Now it's April, May again. And I'm like, why don't we just cancel? It's like nobody wants to cancel. Nobody's getting refunds for tickets. Promoters aren't canceling the gigs. And those shows were all sold out, and they sold out quick. So it was definitely our biggest tour. So once again, who knows what the momentum is going to be like a year later. Having said that, we have a new record that we've been working on as a result of not being able to tour that I think will be just as big as Judas, if not bigger. So hopefully we'll be able to continue the momentum of Fozzie as well. And there's really no reason why, why, why we won't be able to, in my opinion. So since we last uh, talked in this forum, one of the things that you did was um, had a feud with uh, Orange Cassidy. It was a series of three matches on three big shows. I don't know if you remember this. My, As you know, both of my kids are, are huge AEW fans and both are huge Orange Cassidy fans. When I was your realtor, uh, they kept wanting me to ask you what you thought of him because I didn't really get it at the time. I finally got an opportunity to ask you, I think when we taped the last podcast, and you really were positive about the guy and sort of got me in the right frame and just said, look, if something's over, run with it. Why question why it's over, which is 100 percent true. Talk to me about working with him, especially in front of no fans. It might it would have been so fun to have to work with him in front of fans, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, once again, I did 14 weeks with Orange, which is, you know, it's another guy that I saw, much like we mentioned about Frank and Gazarian earlier, like this guy is just really unique and he's really good. And uh, a lot of people were bagging on him because of his gimmick, but those are people who don't understand what real wrestling really is. I mean, the, the concept of wrestling is, is to get over and to do that in any way you can. And, and Brian Pillman told me, 
25 years ago, if you want to make it in this business, you got to do something different. That's what Orange did. So at first I didn't like it. I thought it was lazy. thought it was stupid. Then I pulled my head out of my ass and I was like, you know, what's the appeal here? And I was this guy's a genius. Like he's done the exact opposite. And meanwhile, he can do all the stuff, but he's the exact opposite of pulling it all back uh, and creating this whole kind of lazy guy character that people responded to and loved. So I was like, you know what? That's just, that's really smart. Let me see if I can help this guy and we can use him more in a main event spot. And more importantly, we can, um, let's, let's expand his, his palette a bit, you know? And so we did 14 weeks together and it was great, but there was no fans for any of those weeks. I think the fans came in the next week, which is a little bit of a shame. Um, but what are you going to do? You know what I mean? Like you can only put stuff off for so long. And we realized that, listen, this fucking pandemic is ending, but this show isn't ending either. So we need to continue to create ratings and do stuff that people are going to want to be a part of. So once again, would it have been better if there were fans? Absolutely. Was it still pretty badass when there was no fans? Absolutely. It still drew great ratings. Uh, I mean, Mimosa Mayhem on paper uh, was a ridiculous concept. And then we actually did the match. and It was a lot of fun to where now everybody wants to do one, you know. So, And that's what wrestling is. Be creative, uh, be unique, and also play with the cards that you're dealt. And I love listening to the, to the fucking guys, you know, who we're talking about that are bearing everything about us. Listen, we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic and we've kept our demos up and we've kept our numbers up, not as high as they could have been, but the demos sure are. There's a reason for that because we are taking some chances and doing some things that we wouldn't be doing if there was 5,000 people there a night because we have no choice. We're all in this together. So you can sit back and complain about it and bitch about it, or you could just take advantage of what we're given and do the best you can. And that's what we've done. So I was really happy with the program I did with Orange Cassidy. Hopefully I can revisit it at some point when there are fans. But even if not, I think that program did exactly what great stories are supposed to do. At the end of it, both of us were bigger stars than we were at the beginning of it. I will never. First of all, I heard he had the top two selling T-shirts on Pro Wrestling Tees this year. So uh, something more. Does that piss you off on a personal level? Kind of not piss you off, but. No, not at all. When we were feuding. He had uh, number one, and I was number two. Like, and that's that's oh, cool. Same, once again. That's awesome. The, the, and there's the original drawing. People can't see it at home for the for Mimosa Mayhem. I drew that, <laughs> and you can see OJ and Bubbly are on the sides there, and that's basically what we did—a different, you know, more intricate version. But I drew that on a piece of paper in about ten minutes and sent it to Tony Khan. He loved it. So, um, yeah, I mean, once again, it doesn't piss me off at all because that's why I wanted to work with him in the first place. People love him and he's getting over. And that's what wrestling's all about, man. This isn't, you know, and you'll understand what we're saying here. This isn't WCW in the 90s where if someone starts getting over, you put the crush on them. You know, we want everybody to get over because we need everybody to get over because that's how we build our company. And I think when the company first started, it was built on the back of Chris Jericho for the first few months. And that's why they brought me in. And that's why, you know, I was compensated accordingly. But once we started building, now it's on eight to 10 people's backs. It's not just on me. And that's always what it was supposed to be. It can't always be on me because I'm only going to be able to do it for so long. And now we have, you know, now we really do have Cody as a draw and the young bucks and, and Kenny Omega and, you know, guys like hangman coming up and Moxley and, and Cowards Cassidy and, and Darby Allen. And there's so many uh, great performers in that company that now have a little bit more name value than they did a year ago. And that's what it's all about. 
Sure, that's what TV is for, and you guys have taken right. advantage of it. It's funny you mentioned that about anything. You, you could do anything in a pandemic in wrestling. I went on a tangent about that. About It was around the time that they did Raw Underground. You guys, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, if that's okay, but you guys did your song and dance routine with uh, MJF. Impact had Wrestle House, and people were bitch. I'm like, we're in a pandemic. There's no wrong thing. It might stink. I mean, no, you know, you might not like Raw Underground, but you got to try anything at this at this point because wrestling was not made to be done without fans. And here's the thing too, Dave, that makes me laugh too is that you know I came up in the '80s. You know, I was a teenager in the '80s, so I loved wrestling and I loved the serious aspect, but I loved the you know the, the, the entertainment. I loved the Slammy Awards where Jim Duggan and Harley Race were getting into a fight with the giant fish in a punch bowl backstage. You know, you think if, if fucking Jim Cornette saw that now, he would check them down and Jim. The Harley Race is with a fucking punch bowl. We're a piece of shit. Like, this Harley Race is embarrassing. Like, no, that's entertainment. Vince singing Stand Back with Hulk Hogan on bass, the dancing girls. I mean, that's fucking wrestling to me, too. It really is, and it always has been. So when we're thinking of Stadium Stampede or thinking of Mimosa Man, we're thinking of Dinner Debonair, those are all part of the business to me, and it always has been. I've always had that element to me. And it's, if, if people like it, that's great. If they don't, that's great. But to me, it makes sense. Now, would we do another dinner debonair? I don't know. Probably not. But we did it. And it was great. And it was something that had never been seen before in wrestling. And it was well done. And to me, that's all that matters. You know, you can't deny the, the entertainment value of it. So, listen, I love a five-star match as much as anybody. But what exactly is a five-star match? A bunch of high spots? Because Hogan versus versus Rock was five stars, too. And they didn't fucking do anything. So what's the definition of five stars? It's what's the most entertaining thing for what mood you're in at the time. It's Before we get, I want to talk about that, your feud with MJF. And um, is that Dinner Debonair it was called? Yeah. I you mentioned the uh, the match at the Slammies. You know, I've watched a lot of wrestling in my days, but I'd never forget this line, and it still cracks me up to this day. Uh, it was Harley and um, and Duggan were fighting throughout the building, as you know, and all of a sudden a llama passed by, just randomly for no reason. And I remember Gorilla Monsoon going, a "Look, a llama." Oh man, me and my friends back in the day in college, you know, and when uh, we'd have a few beers or something. That I mean, that's something that still stands out to me. And you know how much wrestling I've seen. But that's funny too. I mean, we didn't mention the the Inner Circle slays Vegas. I mean, that was just a total entertaining thing. Let's go to Vegas and have some fun and do kind of a hangover type thing, you know. And that turned out great. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted some farm animals in there, which we ended up using chickens. But those chickens were CGI chickens that were put in afterwards. And to me, just the whole concept of of, of, of you know, we induct Elvis into the Inner Circle, and then we see the chickens, and Elvis goes, "Who brought the farm animals, baby?" Like, I just, to me, that's a fucking line, like, look, a llama, like, Elvis, Elvis Presley in the inner circle asking who brought the farm animals in the middle of a wrestling movie. That to me is like, that's funny. And and for my humor too, like, we play everything straight. That's my, that's my, my motto. Play it straight. If you play it straight, it's always funny. If you try and insert, you know, fart noises or whatever, like Vince would do, it becomes stupid. If you play it straight, like, of course there's chickens in this, in this hotel room. Why wouldn't there be? And just use it and move on and never mention it again. That's fucking comedy to me. And it works. It's funny because the people that buried, and once again, it's the same ones, that buried Inner Circle Slays Vegas, those two segments 
were the highest rated segments on Dynamite last week. They both did over a million views, which for Dynamite, you start getting into a million, that is big, big ratings. And both of those segments did over a million. So now we know, okay, we can do those types of things from time to time if they're put in the right spot in the right circumstances. You wouldn't want to do it every week, but sometimes Elvis seeing some farm animals being fed Funyuns by Santana is going to draw money. You know, in the same vein, people still talk about you and the, the list of a thousand holds, you know, and, and yeah. so and, you know, the thing with Dean and then the thing, you know, you're on the list, all the stuff that a lot of these things you come up with, people still talk about. Let's get to the uh, dinner debonair. Whose idea was that? And uh, why did you think of it? Well, it was, first of all, it was MGF's idea to do kind of a song. Oh, yeah, I, I would have sworn it was your idea. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. So, so that's the thing I like about working with MGF is he comes up with some really good ideas. It was his, his initial idea to go to Vegas, too. And once I kind of wrapped my head around it, then I kind of put my, my thoughts into it. So he wanted to do – he had just seen Rocketman, uh, the Elton John movie, which I'm sure you watched. He wanted to do Hockey Cat and make it kind of a fantasy sequence. And, and I thought, well, Hockey Cat isn't the right, isn't the right song for this. And I thought, what about Me and My Shadow – Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin. So then I started, you know, uh, inquiring with the w, uh, with the AEW legal team, like, you know, how can we get the rights to this? And then I pitched it to Tony Khan, and, and I, I pitched it as a fantasy as well. And he was like, no, we don't do fantasy. It's like, you guys would just do it. You would do it for real. And like, you guys in the old school, like, we paid for this time, and here's what we did. So once we kind of all agreed, and kudos to Tony Khan for, for allowing us to do it, because it is such an outside-the-box thing, but he's got outside-the-box thinking, too, just as we said, for the, you know, Mosa Man or going to Vegas or all these things, because he knows it's going to be good if, if we're involved. So that's basically what it was, you know, and then we start putting it together, and then, you know, I, I called the the, Tampa, or the uh, Jacksonville Jaguar cheerleading coach, and then we started getting them involved, and then we finally got the rights to the music, and then you know, kind of work out a little bit of a dance routine, and, and Max came to my house in Tampa uh, to rehearse it, to rehearse the song, because we sang it for real, we danced it for real. Yeah, so, I mean, it was just one of those things. It, it, it was very guerrilla filmmaking. We didn't go to a recording studio to record the music. We just did it right there, holding, you know, the camera mic, singing into it. And then we just did the dance and we edited it in. And the crazy thing was about an hour before showtime, before this thing was supposed to air, the people that own the song didn't like the version we used. I don't know why. Maybe they had heat with the guitar player or whatever. So we had to scramble to find another version of the same song. They just didn't want those particular musicians on it. So we literally, that thing aired at 921, and we submitted it and got it downloaded into the truck, which people will understand. Like when you when you get a tape, you don't just give it. They, they got it downloaded into the system to be able to put it on the air. It got finished at 902 and aired at 921. So 19 minutes. Had we been 19, and that's, as, as Dave will tell you, during fucking live TV, 19 minutes might as well be 19 seconds. It was so close to where Tony's like, you guys are going to have to go to the ring and do it. We're like, fuck, we don't know what to do. <laughs> it's going to suck. So just, in the, if people only knew sometimes what happens when you're doing live TV, they would blow their mind, blow their fucking minds. But we got it on and we, and we got it done. And then uh, that was, that was history. How long did it take to do that entire scene? It took a long time. It was one of those ones where we started because we got there, I think, at five. So then we have to record the song and then we have to kind of do the intro and the outro and work on the dance. And obviously it wasn't one long live dance routine. We're doing, you know, different takes and different stuff. And, you know, you, you, 
and you're fucking up a couple of the dances or a few of the shots aren't right. So we ended up finishing up at about midnight. So it took about seven or eight hours and then took yeah. another seven or eight hours to, to edit as well. But the same thing happened. We did Stadium Stampede. We started Stadium Stampede at six o'clock, finished it at 5.30 a.m. and then spent, you know, five hours editing it during the day. So those type of shoots, it's funny because we're, we're delivering Hollywood quality material but instead of it taking six months, it takes us, you know, six hours. But it looks exactly the same as something you would see on, you know, HBO or on, you know, on, on CBS or whatever it may be. How long do you think you can keep the inner circle as a team going? I know that you're not a big fan of doing things forever and you like to change things up. Is the MJF, without giving away any any secrets, is the MJF thing sort of the beginning of, of going a different direction, if you could say? Or or is it something that you'd like to keep doing long term? Well, I mean, you know, there's always long term story, uh, long term plans, long term ideas for everything that I do. Uh, if you look at all my feuds since I came to AEW, I mean, Cody, that was about 10 weeks, and Moxley was about 12 weeks. Orange Cassidy was 14. I mean, the fucking Young Bucks, Inner Circle versus the Elite, lasted from October 2nd all the way to May 25th, whenever whenever Stadium Stampede was. So the Inner Circle is one of those rare things. It's, it's like I didn't know those guys besides Hager, who I hadn't seen much over the, the years prior. Uh, and then suddenly we get together after a week or two. It's like, we just look fun. We look, we look cool. It looks like Guns N' Roses in 1987, where everybody's got a little bit of a different look. They just look like a badass team of fucking dudes, right? And so in AEW, as I'm sure you've noticed, there's now a lot of factions. So everybody's in a faction, but we were the first. And, you know, a lot of times people want to start turning heel or turning babyface or whatever. So, I mean, there's always the option of, of, of what we can do to keep things fresh. And obviously putting MJF and Wardlow in there is one of those things, but there's always a long-term story to it. And this story between Max and I, I think began at the beginning of September, the day after Mimosa Mayhem. So it's already been going for three months. And you didn't even realize it yet. So it can go another three months. It can go another six months. It all depends on, on, on how the plans that we have go. And we're constantly switching and, and change. I just changed a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, last week because it wasn't what I was feeling when I first came up with it. But we have stuff planned, you know, all the way until May at this point. What the twists and turns are, that's for you to find out. But sure. it's all going to be interesting and fun and exciting. And there'll be a few plot holes here and there, but I work very hard to make sure there aren't any. And, of course, too, then we also have Tony's rule of no hidden cameras backstage. So that forces us to have to expand our ideas as well because we can't do the typical wrestling of just you know if you and i are conspiring and, and you know you and me are conspiring against malenko like malenko doesn't watch the show so he doesn't see it like tony doesn't like that we've even pointed that out i mean when mjf both call each other losers and the next week he called me a loser i saw you call me a loser on, on tv you know and, and then that's kind of we've now set those rules which are the rules that tony gave us which are great but it really limits how you can kind of do things behind the scene. But overall, I think people are going to really enjoy it. Once again, what we have planned is something that I don't think anybody is going to uh, to guess, or maybe they will, but but that's for you to find out when the time is right. For sure. That's, that's what this business is all about, and I'm looking forward to it as much as anybody. You mentioned uh, the reason I asked this is because there was uh, something I don't know if this is true or not, but I saw something on Twitter that said that you had spoke. You had mentioned all the different factions and something that said you had spoke up in a production meeting uh, about, you know, maybe making sure you one faction looks at what the other faction is doing. So you don't repeat yourself. I don't know if there's any truth to that. But the fact that you were in a production meeting got me thinking. I'm just wondering how involved you are in 
the big picture of, you know, Cody's storyline and, and, and the Young Buck storyline, or is it just Chris Jericho and what you're doing and you let the others do the creative for the other? Well, it pretty much is that. It, it kind of everyone's sort of in control of their own stuff, at least the big, the big names, the big wigs. I would like to see more of an overlying, um, you know, plan for what everybody's going to be doing. And maybe, maybe the, the, the EVPs have that. But um, to me, it's like I worry about my stuff. And then if people ask, you know, their opinions, my opinions and other stuff, that's fine. But I can't really, you know, weigh in too much about what the Young Bucks are doing or what Kenny's doing unless they're doing it with me. Um, and I think that's kind of the way it's worked so far. And I think that also kind of goes to our initial you know, motto of not having writers or anything like that. And I mentioned that it'd be cool to have some of, that would kind of keep some of the details in line, but um, all that stuff will come. You know, we've been doing this for a year with 90% of the roster who had never had live TV. And yet, you know, we're drawing a million viewers a week at different points and then doing these great numbers. So I think it's been going along fairly well. Uh, it can always be better. Uh, it can always be worse. But I think as we continue to grow, you know, we'll see. We need more work on this. And maybe this doesn't need to be as overblown as we've been making it. So the good news is we have a lot of unjaded, unbiased creative minds. And we're also very, very, very cognizant of, of what we call wrestling snaky snaky. You'll know what that means. We don't have any snaky snaky. That means, you know, going behind people's backs and trying yeah. to talk. And we, we don't want that. We don't like it. And obviously it's wrestling. There's going to be a few comments. This guy pissed me off or that guy's over the line. Or what the fuck is this guy doing? But there's no concerted effort to try and bury somebody. We, we realize we're a team and we all have to work together to, to really make a name for ourselves. I don't even want to say to compete with WWE because that's not what we're doing. We have to work very hard to make a name for ourselves and make a product that people want to see that will pay money to see. And the best way to do that is with a united front and not burying each other behind, behind their backs. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how it is in WWE, obviously, but if, it, if WCW didn't teach everybody that, then nobody learned anything, quite frankly. And I was there. So I, I know, and, and, you know, I'm one of the few that, that can tell you that. And Dustin Rhodes is one of the few that can tell you that. And Cody Rhodes is one of the few. So, we, you know, and once again, we're really, really, really keeping an eye on that and making sure that that doesn't happen. There's no reason for it to. Absolutely not. If everybody works together as a team and, you know, it's a cliche, as you could say, but uh, but it's much more positive of a, of a product and uh, doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. Hey, you jumped into color commentary uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic and it's really taken off. The numbers have been great. Is it something that you were is that something you were looking to do maybe when your career is over or did you just kind of fall into it with the pandemic and, you know, some of the guys not traveling at the beginning? Yeah, I mean, basically what happened was, uh, and your answer was kind of yes and no. I mean, I thought I could probably do that. I, I had done a few matches here and there, which I thought were always kind of cool. But it's different doing a whole show. And what happened was when we got shut down in Florida right off the bat, we had 24 hours to film six weeks of TV. So we went to uh, QT Marshall's school in Atlanta, and we only had, Tony will tell you the exact number. I think it was 30%. He probably has it, 29.235 or whatever it is. And 
it was one of those things where we really had to figure out what we we're going to do. That's when the idea for the TNT title came up, even though it already had come up, which is to do the tournament. So there's, there's a reason behind these weeks of TV and the guys that we have. And I was actually home. I, that was the week that we did the uh, uh, release the hounds where I had the trying to get Vanguard one to join the inner circle on a little t-shirt. He, he fucks off. So I released the hounds. And I mean, it was a really fun little thing, but the idea was the idea for me, because I was kind of working Long story short, we had built up to something for Blood and Guts, March 25th, that all was taken away with the inner circle and the elite. So now what are we going to do? So it's kind of a uh, rebooting session. So, okay, we'll do Vanguard one thing this week. I'll do commentary next week for the whole show, and then we'll figure out what we're going to do. Meanwhile, everything got shut down. I asked Tony what he's going to do. He said, we got to film these six weeks of TV. I said, well, I'll be there. Like, I'll come to Atlanta. He goes, really? You'll be there? Like, of course I'll be there. Because from a selfish standpoint, I can't afford to be off TV for six weeks. I mean, in wrestling time, that's 18 years. Like, I'm too big of an asset to the company, and I'm too big of an asshole myself that I'm not going to be off TV. <laughs> so I said, let me just come in. I'll do, t- I'll do commentary for, like, Jim Ross can't make it, and Excalibur's in California. Tony will be there, and we're going to have different people do. And I said, just let me do the whole thing. That way, Jericho has constant presence on these four weeks of shows where you don't have any of your top, top stars besides Cody and myself. And Kenny was there, too. But there was no Young Bucks and no SCU and, you know, a lot of big names missing. Moxley wasn't there. So uh, that's what I did. And we did 26 matches in one day. Talk about being thrown into the fire. And obviously, Tony Schiavone is one of the best. But we had great chemistry right off the bat. We had a lot of fun. And it went by really fast. And I'll tell you what, it's like, it's like re-announcing 26 matches. It gets really tedious after a while. But we realized that we have to make this good because this could be our TV for, the, for who knows how long. So six weeks were, were edited down to four. But then we realized that we had something. And Tony really liked it. He really enjoyed it. And Tony Khan really liked it. He really enjoyed it. So now we knew that whenever Jericho is needed, he can do commentary. That's what I do. I do usually once a month. And I think the idea is to do more. And then when I eventually stop wrestling, whenever that might be in fucking 2097 or whatever the hell it is, I can see myself doing commentary full time and enjoying it because I know what to do. The idea is to get over everybody, not yourself. And that's what I try and do. And it's funny because some of the most entertaining people in that you'd think would be good at color commentary uh, in this business can't do it. Arn Anderson is, as we know, one of the most greatest promos of all time and even more entertaining behind the scenes. Dean Malenko, one of the sharpest sense of humors, I guess driest. But uh, those guys have both tried to do it and, and will admit that they it's not for them. So it's not as easy as people might think this guy could get a, cut a great promo so he could do color commentary. Yeah, exactly. No, and it's, it's, it's one of those things too. Like you're not a, you know, you're not a great coach if you're Wayne Gretzky. Just because you're a great player doesn't necessarily make a great coach. So I mean, it takes a certain cadence to it and a certain fearlessness. You know, I have no problems throwing pop culture references out there. I treat everything that I do kind of like a Family Guy. If you know what it is, you get a laugh. If you don't, you just move on and never mention it again. And I know that when my favorite line is when when Britt Baker came out and she was wearing a silver costume and I said, "Oh, she looks like Ace Frehley." And then she had broke her nose and she was bleeding all over the place. I said, she went from Ace Fraley to Gene Simmons in the course of one. <laughs> that was a great line. So I saw Clint Bobsky made a little, uh, uh, a little uh, appearance cameo. Uh, how is it to, uh, how is it to uh, uh, embrace uh, Mr. Bobsky again? Yeah, it was fun. You know, um, considering that I try to have you banned from the, or from the, or try to get you barred from the first one, try to pull you off the show. That's what it was. 
Um, yeah, I love those guys. And, uh, you know, Clint Bobsky is such a ridiculous character to play, especially in that world. So it was fun to do. Uh, I trademarked the name, which I was very surprised that nobody uh, in, in WWE had done that already. It's a character I've been using since I was 18 years old. So it kind of is my guy. And uh, I think there'll be more opportunities for Clint uh, in, in the future. I hope so, yeah. And I should have taken the thousand bucks, but that's a whole different story. I think it was 2500 at first. Oh, God. I don't even know. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna not. I'm gonna skip past that. Hey, just to wrap things up, you've talked about the future of Fozzie. You've talked a lot about AEW. Talk to me about that. You mentioned earlier the Jericho Cruise. I know that it was sold out, and I know that this has been a, a real uh, something that you put a lot of heart and soul and time into, and wasn't exactly like an overnight success, like everything. A, a lot of other things that you've done in your career. So, uh, you know, with the pandemic and all that, what update the fans on the future of the Jericho Cruise? Yeah, I mean, I didn't expect it to be an overnight success. Success. The first year was a success, uh, you know, uh, from, a, from a fun standpoint, a concept standpoint. It was a major bomb financially. And we made some changes and fixed that in year two to where it was successful in both, uh, both areas. And we knew that we had something special to the point where we sold it out completely very quickly for the, for the voyage that was supposed to happen in February of this year. Um, unfortunately, that's not going to happen because of the pandemic. They moved it back to October. So, um, and I don't see any reason why that won't happen. And, you know, when we're ready to get back going, that's, that's another thing. Once, once the sold out cruise got postponed, then you have to put all the tickets back into the pot, so to speak, and it sold out again. So we've sold this one out twice and people are ready to do stuff and they're ready to have fun. And now they know exactly what the Jericho cruise is and we have it down to a science. So we're excited, man. Uh, something that I plan to do for, for many more years to come. Uh, Kiss has 10 of them. There's no reason why Jericho can't have 10 of them as well. Oh, no, no. I, I would expect it to be a yearly thing once the world gets back to normal. Hey, um, thank you, Chris, for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm, I'm really psyched that you're getting – I may be more excited than you are that you're getting a gold record. So uh, congratulations on that. Maybe in six months or so I'll be able to come back and, and I'll show it to you. So, what, yeah, like I said, like to me that that's – you know, it's something about our band is, is through whatever circumstances, we're now almost a radio band. We have five – top 30 singles with three top tens. And in that time frame, that's where you really grow your band, which I didn't realize in this day and age that radio is still important. So throw a gold record in there. Suddenly Fozzie's, uh, you know, we're, getting, we're big time, baby. We're big time. You, you certainly are. Hey, thanks for the time. I know your time is extremely busy. And uh, happy Thanksgiving, Chris, to you and your family. Same to you, dude. Always interesting, fascinating stuff from Chris Jericho. And it's like that having a conversation in his backyard over a couple of drinks, quite frankly. The guy has such an insight for the business and uh, everything that he's involved with and everything he wants to do with AEW, uh, present and future. And um, it's always fascinating to, do, to, to have him. Uh, I texted him afterwards and said, hey, thanks again. He goes, sure, anytime. And I wrote, careful what you wish for, because uh, I'd love to pick his brain once a month. But um well, great stuff on Taker, great stuff on AEW, great insight on the wrestling business in the pandemic in 2020. And I thank Chris Jericho for uh, coming on, hopping on, on uh, when we taped it was uh, Thanksgiving weekend. So not a lot of people that would hop on, not a lot of people in Chris Jericho's uh, orbit that would hop on Thanksgiving weekend. So I really do appreciate that. And uh, spread the word if you liked it. Tell your friends. You tell. Go on Twitter. Go on Facebook. You could send uh, positive reviews to websites. I'd really like for this one to be uh, 
to be well listened to because I really appreciate the time he gave me on a holiday weekend. Next week, we are looking and almost, I'm actually was texting in uh, as we were coming back to record the close of this podcast um, with the one and only Ross Foreman, uh, PR director for Impact Wrestling. I don't know if that's his exact title. Uh, and um, working on and, and look to have lined up for next week, the world's most dangerous man, Ken Shamrock. So I'm looking forward to that. What, what, a, what a career that guy has had. Uh, pioneer in, in MMA in its infancy. Uh, pioneer in TNA in its infancy. Uh, had a run with WWE, now back at Impact. Uh, kind of dabbles in and out of MMA and wrestling. So a lot of great stuff we could ask him. If you have any questions, hit me up on Twitter at David Penzer. If you have any questions for the world's most dangerous man, Ken Shamrock, as we are uh, looking to have him on next week on this very podcast. Again, follow me on Twitter at David Penzer. And you could, if you'd like to buy a... Uh, uh, a City Ringside logo t-shirt. You could uh, help us with the great experiment at ProWrestlingTees.com backslash David Penzer. We will see you next week. Thanks for listening as always. Thank you to Chris Jericho. And until next week, I'm still City Ringside. Follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer. You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. This is a Landry Football Quick Fix on Radio Influence. We complain, I do, about politics and how we do things. At least there's an organization. At least there's a House and a Senate, and we may disagree with what they're doing, but there's a path to do things. And I know in the NFL being involved, there's a path to get changes. There's a path to be heard. There's a path to throw out some ideas. In college, it's whistling Dixie a lot of times. You know, it's just, it's just you know, something that, that we could do better with. The Landry Football Podcast with veteran scout and coach Chris Landry can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.